please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 4 this morning as we continue in our exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And I'm going to read from verse uh, 27 of chapter 1 for context. Paul says to Philippians, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, as we look at this text and these principles contained herein, help us to understand them. Help us to uh, discern how they apply to our specific circumstances in our particular lives. Help us to apply them. Help us to remember them. Help us to live in light of them. And please guide us as we look at your word. And please guide me as I preach your word. That my words would be your words and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Perhaps uh, one of the most important principles within an organization uh, whether that be a group, a team, a family, a church. Um, One of the most important principles which contributes to the success or failure of the group is this principle of unity. Of unity. Unity amongst the group. uh, uh, Working together. um, Being of like mind and like purpose. Understanding the purpose and the function of the group. Um, Every group has also has rules and standards, um, has a purpose. And it's important in order to achieve that purpose or um, that the group uh, functions harmoniously that there would be unity. And this is the primary principle which Paul is trying to uh, teach or trying to remind the Philippians of here in this passage he kind of alludes to it to, in the previous uh, few verses. But unity, as most of us 
ought to know is, is very vital, is very important. You know, um, some of us uh, see that in family contexts and family situations. You uh, may have grown up in where you've witnessed um, either unity or disunity or um, uh, both and. Um, you may have been in, in organizations, uh, a job or a sports team where you've seen the same. Um, most of my uh, adult life has been spent in the military, but even before that, I um, played as many sports as I possibly could, as many team sports. And, and I saw this concept of unity being played out, um, whether good or bad. Um, <clears throat> but whether sports or military or career, um, you may have seen it also um, in groups of friends. Um, think of... of um, those uh, high school cliques or in college or young adults and, and just the, the principle of unity playing out. Um, I remember uh, in this one time in, in boot camp and where, you know, being in the Marine Corps, unity and cohesion was drilled into you. It was beaten into you. <laughs> if there was any disunity, they would squash that immediately. But it is not just that concept, but the whole structure of, of marching together as one unit. And you see that and just um, how um, marching in one unit kind of contributes to that. <clears throat> um, all the members of this one large unit, whether it be uh, 50 or 100 or 150 or 500, um, seeing them when they're actually marching in unison is a sight to see. Um, <clears throat> And it contributes to the success of the group or the unit. I remember um, seeing this um, when I was in college. I was a, a part of uh, Army ROTC, and, and part of our duties was to um, <clears throat> pull the cannon or man the cannon at football games. Um, so prior to football games or the halftime, we would um, pull the cannon. Just you know, is is one aspect of you know, the football game. And I remember during one game, um, <clears throat> standing there after the game was just about to start. And uh, I didn't really follow our sports team at all. You know, even though I played sports, I didn't really follow. I didn't really care. But I remember seeing the opposing team. And before they were to take the field, their marching band had come out. And their marching band was well-dressed. They were even had, they came out marching in unison. They even had the same almost demeanor and look on their face. And there was such unity in just the way. And it's one thing for a soldier or a Marine to march. It's a whole nother thing to march in unison while playing an instrument. I don't even know how that's done. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and to do that and be in unison. And just seeing this opposing team and their marching band, I didn't know anything about their team. I knew very little about our football team. But I saw this marching band, not just it was a sight to see, and their unity, and I just felt like, man, I think we're going to get whooped. <laughs> and I didn't even see, I don't know what the result, but just seeing the marching band, and there's a sense of this, this power in a unified group or, or a unified organization that they are one. There, there's no division. There's no discord. 
There, there's, <clears throat> there's almost no individualism. You see the strength and the power of, of a group uh, working together as one. There, there's synergy. And, and this is what Paul is getting at here. He, he wants to drive this point home to the church, to the church at Philippi. And, and he, he starts... Um, Really, in, in verse 27, as he tells them to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether he comes and sees them or he's absent, he will hear that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. That they are one, um, focused on the gospel, living for the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, carrying out the mission of the church, the great commission with, which the Lord Jesus Christ gave to all his disciples. And that they would in no way be alarmed by their opponents. And so he, he calls them to, in a sense, a, a, a unity based on the gospel, living for the gospel, and, and that in doing so, that their opponents, those outside of them, those outside the church, outside the organization, if you will, would see their unity, their, their strength together, their um, resolve to live for the gospel, and they would be impacted by it. <clears throat> and now he takes, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, he has this therefore, which we know as Bible students that whenever there's a therefore, you have to ask what is it there for. And so you link back to the previous passage. But nonetheless, he kind of shifts from a unity um, from the outside looking in as, as they are to live in unison based on the gospel to now he's, he's focusing on um, promoting unity uh, from within. Not so much as um, unity as the world sees, but unity as one another sees within the church. How they are to act and respond and behave towards one another. <clears throat> and so in this passage, the Apostle Paul, he calls on the Philippians to excel in their unity as a church, in their love for one another, and as he does this, we will see that he he's really elaborates on four aspects of unity. We, we can see four aspects of unity here. Some uh, Three of them are, are really clear, and, and the other one is somewhat implied. But we first see the prerequisites of unity, and then we'll see the plea for unity, then the principles of unity, and then the practices for unity. So first, as Paul gives what I've entitled this, message as the prescription for unity, and I, I, I have to alliterate, I'm a Baptist preacher, so um, we will see first the prerequisites of unity, verses 1 and beginning of 2. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion fulfill my joy, or, or some of your translations may say complete my joy that you think the same way, that you are one. And there's this these series of um, clauses. Um, we see these if statements, these if there is any. And this is, in a sense, what, what um, <clears throat> many have called the, uh, an if-then clause. It's a, it's a if, if this condition is, is 
sure, if this condition is true, then you will do this. If-then clause, an if-then statement, an if-then argument. Uh, Dr. Will Varner, uh, uh, um, he writes in his commentary about this. It's, in a sense, what's, what um, Greek grammarians and theologians call a first-class conditional clause. He says, Dr. Will Varner says that this clause assumes the reality of the condition, not merely its possibility. So it's not just a possibility, it assumes the reality. However, one should resist the tendency to translate with since, for this rendering weakens the rhetorical force of the passage. And as many have looked at this this passage, and they've rightly said, you know, there, there is a sense that, that you could rightly and accurately translate the if to since or because, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, then do this, then fulfill my joy, think the same way, maintain the same love. But as Will Varner writes that, if you translate it since or because, it weakens the rhetorical force or the argument. It's kind of as um, you might say to, you know, say a, a teenager, you know, if you're mature, you will clean your room. You will do your homework. Or, you know, an employer saying to an employee, if if you're a good employee, you'll show up to work on time, you'll do your work. And not in a threatening sense, but almost in a sense of um, assuming that they are a good employee, assuming that they are a mature person, assuming that the person is an adult. Um, Paul is assuming, in a sense, that they are true believers, and they are not only true believers, but mature believers. And so he's using that that condition, that, that if condition, to compel them to unity. And he starts with these, um, what is in a sense, uh, four prerequisites of unity. The first being encouragement in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and this could trans, be translated also as comfort or consolation, if there is any comfort in Christ, but underlying this term encouragement or comfort is um, kind of a, 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 a noun um, which kind of alludes to uh, an encourager or uh, someone who exhorts, a helper. Um, it comes from the w- root uh, term paraclete, which is um, to someone who uh, quite literally comes alongside another one and calls them aside. Um, this is a term that is in a sense used for the Holy Spirit. Um, it, it's, it's almost picturing uh, Jesus Christ himself uh, encouraging us, comforting us, uh, guiding us along, that he is with us. Um, or it could better be um, translated, if there is any hope in Christ. You know, it, it's, do you have a relationship with Christ? It, it, do you have a living, vital um, relationship with Christ where there is encouragement and hope? Then you, there will be unity. You know, and we have to ask this question, do we have this encouragement in Christ? Do we have this hope in Christ? Peter, he, he begins his epistle, 1 Peter, um, where he instructs 
um, his readers how to suffer well under persecution, how to live in a way which is honorable to Jesus Christ, which glorifies Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering. In the beginning of that epistle, he says in verse 3 to 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. And just as Peter reminds his readers of this living hope, this encouragement in Christ, Paul is, in a sense, doing the same, but also pressing this uh, rhetorical question, have you been born again to a living hope? Do you have this living hope, which only comes through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Do you know that you have an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and unfading? That this inheritance is being kept in heaven for you? Do you have encouragement in Christ? Do you have hope in Christ? And if you do, and only if you do, will you meet this first prerequisite of unity in the church encouragement in Christ and then he goes on to the second prerequisite consolation of love or comfort of love from Christ also a sense of of Jesus Christ himself this intimate relationship of him um, almost coming down to as a father to a young child to comfort them to encourage them to whisper in their ear to um, guide them to lift them up is this true of you? Is there comfort of love from Christ? But also, as Paul goes through these if-then statements, it's not just primarily from Christ, but do you show this towards others? Because as God shows us encouragement and consolation and comfort, and there's fellowship and affection and compassion, do we show that towards others? You know, is this the state of our souls, uh, the condition of our lives, our, our behavior? Is there comfort of love from Christ? Is there comfort of love for others? As John writes his epistle of 1 John, this, this letter the, to, um, to help believers test themselves to see whether or not they are in the faith. He writes this letter in 1 John 4 and verse 19. He says this. He says this, this popular phrase which most of us, we memorize without even um, giving effort to it. John says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Is there a consolation of love in your life? Is there a comfort of love? Is it from Christ? And then do you then show the same love towards others? Or, or do you at least try? Or do you at least desire to show the same love? And then this Third prerequisite of unity, Paul says, fellowship of the Spirit. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, do we have fellowship of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit? Are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Are we uh, filled by the Spirit? There's a sense, as Jesus rightly tells Nicodemus, that 
in order to see the kingdom, in order to come into the kingdom, you must be born again. You must be born of the spirit and the water. The, the flesh profits nothing. And so as we come to faith, we uh, are um, what theologians call regenerated, renewed, born again. There, there's new life given to us from the Spirit, from heaven, that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The, the same Spirit who created the world, who, who moved the prophets and the apostles to write Holy Scripture, who, in, in a sense, uh, moved prophets to uh, do miracles. Are we indwelt with the Holy Spirit? And are we filled with the Spirit? You know, Paul gives this command uh, many times in his writings and other New Testament writers that we are called to be filled with the Spirit. And it is a continuous command that we are to be being filled with the Spirit. And, and we are filled with the Spirit when we obey what the Spirit tells us through the Word. When we seek to uh, conform our lives to the Word of God, we are filled with the Spirit. It, it's not... Uh, an emotional, warm and fuzzy feeling. <laughs> That's not how we determine whether or not we're filled with the Spirit. It's we determine whether or not we're filled with the Spirit is if we're living in step with the Spirit through the Word. Now, certainly emotions do come with that, but we can't trust our emotions. We trust the Word of God. Everything comes from the Word of God. Are we in step with the Spirit? Is there fellowship of the Spirit? Is there as this word fellowship could more rightly be translated, is there partnership with the Spirit? Are we walking hand in hand with the Spirit? You know, there's this um, command that Paul gives the Ephesians, and it's, it's in the midst of this list of commands in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit who is with us. And we should know this command. This is a, a, a good command. It's a good verse to memorize in Ephesians 4.29. Um, it, it's a <clears throat> verse you go to that, to tell people that they shouldn't um, curse, they shouldn't swear. And, uh, you know, I've heard uh, some people who, professing believers even, um, who say, you know, there's no command not to swear. You may have heard this just foolishness. <laughs> Someone might say, there's no command not to swear. Well, <clears throat> you know, swear words change with culture and time. But Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That, that the principle is that all our words would be edifying, would be building up. They wouldn't be tearing down they wouldn't be corrupting and you don't need to um, say a quote-unquote swear word to have corrupting speech or to have speech that tears others down and then he gives this command after that command do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption when we speak in a way which is untoward uh, to others or, or tears them down we are grieving the Holy Spirit but then he goes on and he says let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice instead be kind to one another tender-hearted graciously forgiving each other just as God and Christ has also graciously forgiven you this is what it means to be in fellowship with the Spirit 
to be in partnership with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit? Or are we speaking in such a way that the, the Spirit commands us? Do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Um, is there bitterness and anger in our lives toward one another, in our hearts towards one another? Are, are, or uh, positively speaking, are we kind to one another? Are we tender-hearted? Do we graciously forgive each other? Just as God has forgiven us through Christ Jesus. Is there fellowship of the Spirit? Fourth, this fourth prerequisite for unity in the church, unity in the body, is affection and compassion. And just like the other prerequisites, it starts with God. Has God shown his affection and his compassion towards us? You know, one of the self-definitions of God, God defines himself in Exodus 34 to Moses, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious or compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Has God been compassionate towards you through the gospel, through salvation? Has he uh, displayed his affection towards you, his great love towards you displayed in the gospel? As we read in that famous passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Is this true of you? Are you a recipient of God's affection and compassion? And if this is true of you, do you show that towards others? This is Paul, in a sense, uses the same word in the beginning of this letter. In Philippians 1.8, he says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, Paul, more than anyone else, understood the affection of Christ Jesus as he tells uh, Timothy that he is the foremost of sinners. But God displayed in him his mercy. That he would be an example of God's mercy towards others. And because God had such great affection towards Paul, the affection of Christ Jesus, he tells the Philippians, I long for you all with the same affection. We, We have to ask ourselves, do we understand and know the affection of Christ for us? Do you show that same affection and compassion towards others? These are the prerequisites of unity in the church. I like what the Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote concerning unity. <clears throat> he writes this, Ah, were their souls fully assured that God had loved them freely and received them graciously and justified them perfectly and pardoned them absolutely and would glorify them everlastingly. They could not but love where God loves and own where God owns, and embrace where God embraces, and be one with everyone that is one with Jesus. This quote from Thomas Brooks, it not only expresses what Paul is saying here in verse 1, and it expounds upon the exact same argument, that our unity and love for one another is grounded in Christ's love for us, and our unity with him. But this, this quote, it reveals a pastor's heart for unity in the congregation. Which brings us to the second aspect of unity in this passage. The plea for unity. The plea for unity. We've seen the prerequisites uh, 
of unity. And now we see the plea for unity as Paul says, fulfill my joy. That you think the same way or complete my joy. This right there, that, that, that phrase, complete my joy. And that, this right here, fulfill or complete in some of your translations, that, that's the main verb. That's the, the main argument in the whole passage that Paul stems from that. All the other commands stem from that, that his joy would be complete, that he's uh, requesting the Philippians to fulfill his joy, to fill up to the full. And what's interesting is that the Apostle John, he, he, he makes a similar argument and plea in 1 John 1. As he, he writes this letter to assure believers in their faith, to help them to uh, test themselves, to see if they're in the faith, to examine their, themselves, to know that they know that they know that they are saved. The Apostle John, he begins with the same argument as in a sense, that Paul does here. 1 John 1, verse 3, he says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. So that our joy may be made complete. Christian unity produces joy. It ought to produce joy. And not, not only in the one who pleads for it, but amongst all believers. But especially in the one who pleads for it. This is, this is Paul's heart. Paul is bearing his heart to the Philippians right here, asking that they would complete his joy by being one, by being unified by being one body, that they would have no discord, no division, no, no, no squabbles. There, there would be no cliques. There, there would be no popularity contests. This is what Paul wants. And this is, in a sense, the same thing that, that John wants, as he writes in 1 John. But interestingly enough, he writes this famous verse, which we know in, in 3 John, when he writes that letter, he says, I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. <clears throat> and not his literal children, but his spiritual children. The church, the church itself. That they are walking in the truth, which could also be um, an illustration of unity. Because, you know, if you're walking in the truth, if you're obedient to the truth, then you will be one. There will be unity. And there's a sense that, you know, as, as many of us parents know, that the last thing a parent wants to see is their children fighting one another. That brings pain to your heart. And when we know as, as parents that there's squabbles, there's disagreements, and sometimes they're funny, but most of the time they're heartbreaking, they're painful. Um, even if only slightly. We, we want unity as parents. We want unity, um, you know, as fellow believers. I want unity as a pastor. And Paul wants unity. This is the objective of, of his, his plea for unity in the Philippian church, that they would fulfill his joy. But it, it's not... The only purpose 
Um, he, he wants them to fulfill his joy, to complete his joy. But there's a second purpose in his plea for unity, and that is for them to be sanctified in the truth. As John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We, we see that, that unity is grounded in love and truth. And, and I want you to see this a little bit more clearly as, as um, Jesus alludes to this in, in, in uh, his high priestly prayer. So turn with me to John chapter 17. And we see this as you know, one of the greatest prayers in the Bible, probably the greatest prayer in the Bible. And, and all throughout this prayer, as, as Jesus is praying for the disciples and for the church um, uh, on the night in which he would be betrayed, and, and we see um, one of the clearest uh, primary things he prays for is unity. John 17 and verse 13, he says, But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. There again, also unity and joy together. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them." that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. We, we see Jesus' plea for unity, for oneness, and that they would be one as he is one with the Father. And this is the, the glory and the beauty of the Trinity, that there is unity in diversity in the three persons of the Godhead. That there, are, there is completely complete and perfect oneness and unity. As, as we read all throughout the Old Testament, that there is one God. Perfect unity. There's only one God, but there's... One God existing in three persons who are uh, completely unified. And the goal, uh, the end state, the eternal state for believers is that we would be one with God. And that we have complete unity, perfect unity, free from sin. But we are to strive for unity as much as possible here on earth. And, and that unity is... Um, is in the truth. As Jesus prays for unity, he also prays that, that God would, the Father, would sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That he would sanctify, set them apart, make them holy, make them special, and that they would then be one in the truth, set apart in the truth, sanctified in the truth, and that in doing so, his joy would be made full. There would be joy in the oneness as they are also sanctified in truth. This is Paul's plea. 
that his joy would be fulfilled and that they would be unified, but also set apart in the truth, sanctified in the truth, that they would think the same way, thinking on the truth. His plea for unity in the Philippian church and every other church is not only to fulfill his joy, but is also for them to be sanctified in the truth and ultimately is for them to be one with God. To be one with God, that is the end state. His plea is for them to fulfill his joy, to be sanctified in the truth, and to be one with God. This is in a sense that, you know, as, as we go through the prison epistles, as we well, went through Colossians, and then I, now we're going through Philippians, and, and we see um, the prison epistles, also Ephesians, that there's many parallels in these letters um, to these different churches. And there's a great parallel in Ephesians chapter 4, which is essentially the, the central point of that letter that it turns on that hinge. In Ephesians chapter 4, we almost get the, the, the same command that we got in verse 27 of chapter 1, Philippians, uh, in, in the, Paul's letter to Philippi. He says in Ephesians 4 and verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Almost a, a, a similar command, almost the same command for, uh, you know, walk in a manner worthy and then uh, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and then get this, uh, you know, the purpose. He goes on, there is one body and one Spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Calling on unity for the Ephesians, just as he calls for unity for the Philippians, that his joy would be complete. <clears throat> I like what John MacArthur writes in his commentary on this passage, that... He says, it should be every pastor's, church leader's, and church member's prayer that men will not tear asunder what God has divinely joined together in the body of Christ. Because fracturing Christ's church is one of Satan's major objectives. The challenge to preserve the unity of the Spirit is constant. A divided, factious, and bickering church is spiritually weak. It therefore offers little threat to the devil's work and has little power for advancing the gospel of Christ, endeavoring to maintain or to restore the spiritual unity of a congregation is easily the most pressing, difficult, and constant challenge for its leaders. Unity is vital. It's vital for our health as a church, and it's vital for our witness as a church. And that's why it's one of Satan's main tactics. And it's not just Satan's main tactics, but, the, but this, is, this is a primary tactic in warfare in general. To divide and conquer. To sow seeds of discord. To uh, divide the unit up. Divide the organization up. Get them bickering and fighting and, and being suspicious of one another. Jealous of one another. Envious of one another. Um, hating one another. Um, holding grudges towards one another. Being bitter towards one another, unforgiving, ungracious, uh, uh, immovable, um, just not deferring, 
And as, as MacArthur writes, this is a constant challenge for its leaders. Because unity is never static. It's never static. It ebbs and flows. And it's something, that's why um, Paul gives this command to the Ephesians to um, be diligent to maintain the, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That, that we're, we have to constantly maintain this. And, and it starts with our, our own hearts. Because, you know, if you're honest, you, you don't always have the best thoughts of one another. You know, and that's true even within the family. It's true for even the people that are closest to you. That you have to constantly, you know, if you're a believer, you're constantly and continually confessing your sins to God about your evil thoughts towards one another. I know I am. <laughs> it's constant. Constantly striving for unity. And so we've seen these prerequisites of unity, starting with the love of God and Jesus Christ for us and the consolation of love, the fellowship of the, of the Spirit. And then we see Paul's plea for unity, the plea for unity, which is the heart of every pastor, the apostle. Um, this is the heart of God. This is the heart of Jesus Christ himself. And then third, we will now look at the specifics in the principles of unity, the principles of unity in verse 2, that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. There's, there's three principles here that we, first, that we would be thinking the same way, second, that we'd be maintaining the same love, and then third, that we'd be united in spirit, being united in spirit. But as we read this, you know, we, we know we're all individuals. We all have our um, various backgrounds and, and demographics and seasons of life, stages of life, strengths and weaknesses, opinions, abilities, talents. Um, and so how do we think the same way? How are we as individuals to think the same way? And there's really only one answer to that, which Paul alludes to that at the end of this verse, to, that we think on the same thing. We, we are to think the same way by thinking on the same thing, by thinking on one purpose, the purpose given to us through the Word of God, through, the, through Jesus Christ, the purpose for His church, uh, His commands. When we think on the same thing, we will think the same way. It's a, a similar command Paul gives to Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, that we, as he says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, a kind of similar argument as he does here in, in Philippians 2, uh, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, he begins with Christ. In Colossians 3, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. If we think on the same thing, we will think the same way. Because we'll have the same focus, we'll have the same purpose. You know, it's kind of the same with prayer. As we think the same way and we pray to the same person, God Almighty, we are in a sense drawn up towards God. And as we are drawn closer to God, we are in a sense drawn closer to one another. Like the spokes on a wheel that we draw close to the hub. We think 
the same way. We think the same way by thinking on one purpose, but also by renewing our minds. It's, it's a key principle of sanctification, of growth in uh, the Christian life is renew our minds. We need to constantly be renewing our minds. And if we're constantly renewing our minds by Scripture, then we will inevitably start to think the same way. You know, it, it, <clears throat> you see this illustration like <clears throat> some weak churches... Um, they will say, um, in a sense, uh, it doesn't matter what political candidate you vote for. You know, and just on a surface level, that could, in a sense, be somewhat of a true statement. But it does matter because you vote based on your beliefs and your values. So though we do have uh, freedom and liberty to vote however we want, if we're thinking the same way, we'll almost, you know, inevitably land on the same political candidate or we'll, you know, we'll have similar desires, similar wants, you know, well, because we have similar values. You know, and you're free to vote for whoever you want, but it's, 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 no, it's no mystery that many believers end up voting for the same type of person. Now, yeah, it's true that we're only given so many um, choices, <laughs> and, and uh, many times our choices aren't the best choices, but nonetheless, you know, if we're thinking the same way, many things in our life will be similar. Many of our choices, many of our opinions will be similar because we're renewing our minds. We have the same values. We have the same desires. We have the same um, likes and dislikes, so to speak, in, in the most important way, most important things. This is uh, the command that, that Paul gives uh, the Romans as he lays out the gospel comprehensively. And then in Romans chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to each one among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We are to think so as to have sound thinking. We don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And that thinking is established as we renew our minds. So the first principle of unity is that we think the same way. And then second, that we maintain the same love. And just as we, that, that raises a question, how do we think the same way? It raises a, the, the same question, how do, we, how do we love the same way? How do we maintain the same love? And the answer is the same, by loving the same things. By loving the same things and by loving in the same way. Uh, first and foremost, by loving God, understanding His love for us, and then we can love one another and we love one another in the same way. Um, as we love according to God's definition of love. You know, we've heard the saying in our culture that love is love, and that's just silly because you don't define it. You just make it up. It's like water is water, air is air, rock is rock, or tree is tree. 
You have to define it. And we love according to biblical love, according to the definitions of love laid out in 1 Corinthians 13 and other definitions. We love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And as we do that, we're united because we think the same way, we love the same way. And then the third principle Paul lays out is being united in spirit, in our spirits. Because right here he's, he's, he's not talking so much about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about our spirits, our souls. But nonetheless, that implies that we are one with the Holy Spirit, that we have been renewed by the Holy Spirit, that we have been regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit and are being indwelt by the Spirit. And that we are also being continually filled by the Spirit. Then we will be united in spirit, in our spirits. And the, the result, the end result, is that we will be thinking on one purpose. One purpose. The purpose of the church. The purpose which God has for us as believers. That we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We are to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. We are to make disciples. We are to proclaim Christ to a, a, a dark and decaying world. We have a mission. And we are to be about that mission. And we are to train ourselves for that mission, for godliness, through uh, uh, sanctification through the reading of the word through prayer through fellowship through uh, the working out of our giftings and we see that in a sense in the fourth uh, principle of unity which Paul gives or, or the, the fourth um, aspect of unity the practices for unity the practices for unity verses 3 to 4 doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We see right away the, the, the practices of unity, the three stand out right away. That we, um, as Paul says, uh, are to do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory. Don't be self-serving. Don't be self-serving. Which is... In a sense, a lifelong battle because we think of ourselves more than anybody else. And even if we think about someone else, oftentimes we're thinking from the perspective of self. Oftentimes we, we even think about God from the perspective of ourselves. My Christian life, my sanctification, my growth in holiness, my understanding of the word, my prayer life my service in the church it's like you know we we in a sense cannot be freed from the slavery of self because we're always with ourself <laughs> you know it, it, but it is a constant battle as even you know jesus said you know a primary characteristic of a disciple if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me it's like the first command for a disciple of Jesus Christ is to deny yourself. Over and over again. Self-denial throughout the New Testament. And Paul says here, don't be self-serving. Don't work or serve for self-advancement. Uh, you know, you can, you can see that, you know, it's clear in, you know, the corporate world, in your workplace, that we work, you know, more often than not for our career, to advance our career. And and in and of itself, there's nothing necessarily wrong about that. 
Um, it shouldn't be our primary motive. We're supposed to work unto God. We we're work to support our families. We're work, we work to give to the church. But um, we do need to be wise in advancing our career. And everybody around us in our workplace, they're doing the same thing. That's why in our day and age, you know, uh, my father in his generation, you used to find a job for a company and you'd stay there, you know, for almost your whole life. But in my generation, a lot of what you do is you, you jump between company and company and you, you almost do these, these moves to, you know, advance your career in your given field. There's nothing necessarily wrong for that, uh, wrong about that, but, you know, sometimes we can have, in a sense, um, and I've seen this, um, especially amongst ministers, that uh, you can have the same attitude within the church. You work and serve and you build that resume so that you can move on to the, the, the next assignment within the church, you know, uh, you know uh, to advance in leadership. Paul says don't do that. Don't work or serve for the praise of man, the vain glory. And finally, don't be self-deceived, which is once again a, a, a battle, lifelong battle, because we know as we grow in holiness, um, we don't necessarily see our, our sin in the moment. But, you know, a month later, a year later, we look back at a certain um, circumstance or um, interaction with somebody, and, and we're just like, man, that was... That was wretched. <laughs> the, things that, the things that came out of my mouth or, you know, the motive behind it, that was horrible. But that's, that's the Christian life, constantly fighting against self. The first practice of unity, don't, don't be self-serving. The second, esteem others more. Esteem others more. Humble yourselves. Practice the golden rule. That's why it's so... Um, prevalent is so um, well known in culture and people who've never cracked open a bible they know the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you esteem others more than yourselves humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god and he will exalt you at the proper time third prior prioritize others more prioritize others more as he says, but with humility of mind, regarding one another is more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Esteem others more and then prioritize other, others more. Consider others. You know, as he says, not only for your own personal interests. Um, these aren't necessarily sinful interests. It's just the interests of life. Like, you know, I... I have um, some yard work that needs to be done. That's all I'm thinking about. Or, you know, I, I, my, my car is broken down. I need to get it fixed. Or, you know, certain all our, our routine needs and desires that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're on our mind. There are interests. There, there's needs or health needs. He, he's saying regard those needs of others more than the needs of yourself. Consider others more important. You know, for many of us, and... Um, this is really true for me. We're task-oriented. Task-oriented people. Um, especially if you're more of a, like an engineer-type mindset. Um, I'm very task-oriented. I have task lists upon task lists. I think in terms of task lists, of that little block and, and checking the block. 
and it feels so good when I check that block and that's done. And, and it, it feels good. And, I, and it, within ministry, within the family, we have task lists. But I need to constantly remind myself that relationships are more important than tasks. Yes, we, we have things to get done. We have schedules. We have tasks. Um, just as a homemaker, a housewife, has tasks around the house. Um, a, a father, a husband, uh, you know, has tasks in the workplace or even um, other things around the house. Or, and it's true in the church. There's tasks. There's things that need to get done. And oftentimes, they need to get done in order. There's this thing, uh, some of you may have know, know about this, this, um, this management tool. Um, it's popular in the engineering world or project managers. It's called a Gantt chart. And the chart is ordered in such a way that these tasks need to get done before this task gets done. And then that task needs to get done before these tasks get done get done and there's orders of effects and it has to happen in sequence and in order and sometimes we can order our lives around and we think and we get so wrapped up in the tasks that need to get done whether in the workplace or the family or the church that we can just steamroll people and they get in our way or they don't get the task done that they need to get done so that I can get my tasks done and that things can work properly and, and it's true there's things that need to get done but at the end of the day, if we ruin all of our relationships, yet get, fill out our task lists, then, then what is it worth? You, know, you, you have a, a clean house, and it's all orderly, but everybody hates you. That's no good. You know, or the church is functioning well, but everybody's bickering with one another. You know, Relationships are more important than tasks. It's more important than tasks. And sometimes we have to say, you know what? It's all right. That's not, I would like to get that done today, but you know what? Maybe next week. I remember um, my last deployment. <clears throat> I was the executive, executive officer of the unit. So I was basically in charge of everything <laughs> about the unit, all the logistics, the planning, the movement, um, the administrative aspects, the planning of missions. Um, everything fell on me, and... Um, there's also a sense, as they train many leaders in the military, like, you know, if, if somebody ends up in, in a body bag, there's a sense that you're partly responsible for that. And I had task lists. And I had a lot of anxiety over my task lists. But I remember towards the end of that, as I'd have my little notebook in my sleeve, and every day I'd list out my, I have my check blocks, and I'd list out my tasks, and I realized at the end of that deployment when I was finally coming home and I was flipping back through that task list that many of the tasks, which didn't get done that day, almost all of them were eventually completed. And there's so much anxiety over it. And then some of the tasks comes out, come to find out a, a day or two or a week later, I didn't have to do them. They fell off the task list. But what's important is my relationship with the guys and that every guy made it back. And it's true in the church. Our, our relationships are more important than our tasks. But we do need to consider other people and their lives and all the situations that they're going through, their circumstances. Make time for others. Pray for others. The primary way in which we are unified as a body, as a church, is through our prayers. 
That's why I am so, um, I'm so happy that we have a prayer meeting. And I know not all of you make it and you all have different um, circumstances and reasons and, and some of them are good. But that's a sweet time of fellowship and it's a vital time for the health of our church that we pray together. Because when you, you pray on your own, that's good, and you should pray for one another, but something even more special happens when you pray with somebody. You're, in a spiritual sense, you're united to that person. You're drawn together because you're praying with them. And there's a sense that if you ever, and I practice this, you ever have an evil thought about somebody else or a bad thought or a covetous thought or a lustful thought, the first thing you should do is pray for that person. Pray for that person. And sometimes it may take a long time. I remember certain people in my Christian life that for some reason or other, and they may not have sinned against me, but for some reason I had anger or frustration or bitterness towards them, and I would pray for them, and sometimes it'd take a month or two months or a few months to where I had a good, loving attitude towards this person. And sometimes it was as silly as, I don't like that way that person looks. And we can think in petty terms like that. We're all sinners. We need to pray for one another. Because our unity is important. It's vital. I like what Charles Spurgeon says when he, he, he highlights the vital importance of unity in the church. He writes this, that Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. He does his best to promote separation. And he works in ways which we don't fully understand. It's very subtle. We know through the world that he's behind the world system. Um, but there's subtle ways in which he, in a sense, sows seeds of discord within the church. And he works through the church. He works through um, uh, unconverted uh, people who come to the church. He works through um, uh, believers who are uh, living in sin. He works through believers who um, have, uh, are harboring bitterness towards one another. There's so many ways he sows seeds of discord within the church because that's one of his main tactics, to divide the church. And that's why unity, we need to uh, continue to work at it, continue to pray for one another, especially for those you have issues with. And they may not even know it. It's just in your heart and in your mind. First thing you ought to do is pray for that person. You know, in Proverbs chapter 6, if you ever wonder what God is against or what he hates. There is this uh, passage in Proverbs chapter 6 which Solomon clearly says, there are six things which Yahweh hates, even seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked thoughts, feet that hasten to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and finally, one who spreads strife among brothers. Or some of your translations may say, sows seeds of discord. God hates disunity. 
He hates it in his church. He hates it in his people. He hates those who spread discord, who spread strife, who sow seeds of discord. And he hates it because he is one. He is one and he desires his church to be one. And that starts with being born again. It starts with actually being a member of the church, which there may be some of you here who aren't truly a member of the church because you're still in your sin. You have still yet to repent. You've still yet to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You've still yet to recognize that you have sinned against a holy and righteous God who will judge every sin. He will bring every act into judgment. As Jesus Christ said, he will judge you for every careless word. And his judgment is right and just. And there's only one way to escape that judgment, and that's to recognize, first and foremost, that you deserve that judgment. And second, that there's only one uh, mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There's only one way, only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one gospel, and it's through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, that he lived a life that none of us could live and went to the cross to die the death that we all deserve to die to redeem us and to redeem a people for himself so that they would be one with one another so, and that they would eventually be one with him. And so that's the call for unity begins with being one with God, understanding that your sins have made a separation between you and God. And you need to come to him for salvation. And if you are saved, if you are a believer, if you are a part of the church, you need to strive for unity, to maintain that unity, and to display the same love which God has shown you to others. And to be the person he commands you to be, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, to live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great salvation, this great gospel. And you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that you call all sinners everywhere to repent and to believe, to be saved from this wicked and adulterous generation, to leave their sin behind, to recognize that they are sinners and to be one with you. Lord, we are thankful that you made us one, Help us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Help us to strive for unity. Help us to excel in unity. Even though um, oftentimes we can look around at our own body and, and we, as much as we can see, we have good unity. But we're not to rest on our laurels. We're not to coast. We're to excel because we don't have perfect unity. And we won't until we are at home with you. But until then, we are to strive for greater and greater degrees of unity so that we may be effective in our mission here. So, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to live lives in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.